the etymology of buttered. Yeah. What is the yeah. etymology of buttered? <laughs> I don't think the Urban Dictionary goes that goes that in depth. Butterscotch shenanigans. Hey everybody, welcome to episode sixty-eight of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I fling bits around the internet. I'm Carolyn. I bot bop bot. <laughs> <laughs> I bop them on, on the head. I was thinking about bopping butts, but it just didn't work. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. And today's October 11th, 2016. Before we get started, we have a warning. Anything can happen on this show, there will be profanity. So if you're a child, go away. All right. What happened this week, you guys? Wow. That's a big question. It is. Well, for starters, Sam got married. And yep. now he's gone on a honeymoon. Sam so. got hitched like in a cage over a waterfall in a river. That's yes. true, actually. And it was in one of those locations where you always see videos of people flipping over the railing and flying into the river. <laughs> uh, it didn't happen, though. Nobody nobody sailed into the Fortunately and unfortunately. Abyss. You didn't even throw your D&D player's handbook into the water. No, and of course, <laughs> of course, the ceremony was happening, I don't, you know, on this elevated wooden pier thing over the water with slats in between the wood and I was like one of these rings one of these rings is going to just fly out and land oh, right no. in the crack yeah. I mean and its purpose is for weddings I mean that's why that yeah. structure exists yet it's designed for the maximum likelihood of fuck up yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many rings have been lost to that river oh, how many rings have been sacrificed dozens but it's part of their business model because then they can go oh. in afterwards they probably just got scuba gear and then after any problematic weddings they just go get the stuff and they, they just have a ring retrieval team yeah, make some extra few thousand bucks off of each wedding. Metal metal detector and very large magnet. That, that wouldn't work for gold, though. No, but if it was so. a large enough magnet. <laughs> you'd get a bunch of other stuff. So yeah. you kind of it would maybe sell bring all the that ring and, up. and uh, get yourself a new ring. Yeah. So, uh, we also had an event this weekend called Pixel Pop Festival, Pixel which was Pop. organized by Carol and then probably some other people, too. But Yeah, I guess. Um, Definitely some other people, too. Yeah. It was Carol, so... <laughs> Uh, you want, let's let's hear about it. How'd it go? Pixel Pop was really cool. It was our first year at the Science Center. And so it was really neat because we had some things that were available to just people who were at the Science Center to come in and check out and learn about science and also learn about video games. And then and we also centers. Had, and centers. Yeah. Yep. They learned how to center a center mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. a game convention. Nice. And uh, there were two packed days of talks, which was really cool. And uh, I, I it, it's always amazing to be kind of the one organizing and putting together the schedule and then see it all happen and see it all come to fruition and then have people come up afterwards and be like, that talk changed the way that I think about video games. And I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> Yes. So, yeah. yeah. You had a really amazing talk. I had a talk. It was called Do What You Want. The funny thing was uh, I was looking at the schedule, and because the schedule didn't have, it wasn't like a, it didn't say uh, talk name and then speaker name. It just had the talk name. And my talk was called Do What You Want. And so you'd it see. It looked like free time. Yeah, you'd see all this, like along the schedule, you'd see a bunch of talk names, and then there's a block of time that just says Do What You Want in it. And I was like, <laughs> ah, crap. <laughs> now, this is going to be anarchy. People are just going to go do what they want instead they're, of coming to my talk. They're just going to shit on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> people do that. It's weird. It, is, it was weird. It's, uh, as an event coordinator, it's really frustrating when people shit on the stage. But, you know, you say 
do what you want. And then you, you get, you get what you asked for. Yeah. yeah. You know. The the speaker information and everything was all in the handbooks, but we realized that a little bit too late that, you know, not having the speaker name on the, oh, yeah. uh, on the at a glance schedule was a little bit problematic. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it was, it wasn't, it's not a huge sprawling event though. So, you know, yeah. it was pretty easy for people to find where they needed to go and stuff like that. Are you going to do a postmortem of this like you did with your card game? A, a postmortem talk? Yeah. Or, or a article. Article. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, I am going to getting together with my co-organizer, Jeremy, who runs Anime St. Louis. He does the ops and the money side of things for Pixel Pop. I'm going to probably get together with him pretty soon and break it down because we had a lot of feedback. It was our first time at this venue and it was, mistakes were made. (laughs) But but it was overall a really good event. Yeah, but I think this is one of the, it's just an important thing because you're trying to put together a new convention Mm -hmm. and that necessarily socially small it's already grown but this is only year three mm-hmm. right so it's not fair to expect it to be on a positive trajectory and just like keep being successful all the time because of course you gotta keep learning from stuff and yeah. and uh as you know obviously but but other people who want to do this kind of thing i'm sure could can benefit quite a bit yeah. let me let me ask you this because in the past two years it's been at a university yes is it webster Webster University. University, yeah. Um, and we've also done a lot of game jams at universities, and we've done game jams at other locations. Uh, do you, what do you feel are sort of like the the positives or negatives at doing it at a university versus at just some other location? At the science center. So yeah. um, there were there were definitely <laughs> there were definitely reasons why we wanted to move to the science center. Mm-hmm. The university was not set up for a convention setting, and so the flow was really awkward. Yeah, and there you were had classrooms yeah. kind of separating everything. Demos and, were happening. Like the expo hall was split among three or four different classrooms because right. there wasn't a large enough space to have the demos. expo several classrooms. Right, and it's you <laughs> know parking is always hard at universities, and you also. Um, uh, you also make students from other universities feel a little alienated when it's on somebody's home ground. Yeah. Yeah, because there's that weird, uh, should, like, should, I be, university? should I be yeah, here? Like yeah. <laughs> nationalism of university, yeah, like yeah. alma mater nationalism. Um, so, so I mean, and but it was really great to have it at Webster. That's my alma mater, and they have a game design program there, and they, you know, they were really supportive. Uh, but it was also too small. Ultimately, we wound up hitting yeah. a peak of about 500 by the second year, and it was just getting too crowded for people to even see all the talks they wanted to see. So we mm. were talking to the Science Center and it turned out to be a perfect venue as far as the size that we wanted to grow to. Um, and it also wound up being a really great sort of tourist location because we wound up getting a lot more people coming in from out of town this year than any previous year. Oh, that's cool. Because, you know, it's on Forest Park, which is... Yeah this massive, beautiful free park with all kinds of free attractions in St. Louis. And it's just, it's, you know, there's nothing to not do. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm still tired from the weekend, clearly. <laughs> you had a long weekend. There's a, like, yeah, a long weekend. But, um, and so, so, so it was good though. It was, it was a, really good. good. Uh, and, and the people there are, already knew how to run events. So we had an AV crew and we had projectors that they knew how to set up. The yeah, stage AV was awesome. was smooth and the stage was good. Yeah. Yeah. The, the stage, yeah, of having the, being able to stand on the stage, have the giant screen mm-hmm. behind and then the TV in the front where you could see you know what was on the screen behind you was a uh, was a really nice nice thing yeah. and there so. was a lot of there was a lot of like walk-in traffic from people who were just there to see the science center were like oh wait there's video games what's here? this we had people reach out to us after and be like this was the coolest thing that we accidentally found all weekend so it was really cool um and we this was our first year actually of also uh, recording all of the talks. So we had a video crew yeah. actually volunteer. They do events on a regular basis as part of their, as part of their company. And they just reached out and they wanted to 
help the game dev crew. Oh, that's awesome. And so they they volunteered and recorded all the talks on the two main stages. So yeah. they got all did they get all the panels, talks, everything? Just yeah, in the cool. two main rooms. So there were three rooms and the, the third one was primarily for round tables and technical talks. So that one wasn't captured, but the other two rooms were. And so I think it's gonna be really great to have an archive also of just yeah. to show off the quality of talks and when are those gonna start going up? That's a good question. I don't know yet. It's like I said, it was a volunteer crew. So it's yeah, yeah. probably whenever they get around to it. And I also have to go around and snag all the PowerPoints from the people who were on the big stage because it was so big. They weren't able to get the PowerPoints Capsule from thing. behind yeah. them. Hmm. But yeah. So and thank you both for participating. Thanks sure. for having us. Yeah. How was your how was your promoting your games panel? I had a back to back panel at the exact same time, so I couldn't even see it. Yeah, I think it was good. I mean, I I did my classic. Nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> Don't listen to anybody. Uh, try to try to collect your own information, kind of a thing. Um, which was kind of an opposition to the rest of the panel, so it was kind of kind of funny. But uh, but Matt from Graphite Labs, uh, who is about to launch. I've jumped. I've jumped. It's in early access right now. Uh, it was really interesting talking to him because they're just about to launch a game. Yeah. And and they have their own ideas about what's going to make a game successful to launch. And we have our own ideas. Uh, but for them, they, they've done client work before this and, and where their clients handled all the that part of things. And so, so they've been making games for a long time. Right. But they haven't had to do their own right. uh, PR and right. marketing. And so, so it's going to be really fun, I think, to talk with them afterwards and do some postmortems and stuff and figure out hmm. what they thought actually worked and see if who was right. <laughs> <laughs> Maniacal laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they got they got a good game, so I think it's gonna. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty pumped about it. Yeah, um, and we also have uh, so coming up, we have we have we're sort of on the the final week. We're, we feel like we've been in the eye of the storm of conventions and you know everything else for the past. Uh, what, six, eight weeks or something? Yeah, it's been about two months. So we're not done yet. We have... <laughs> we're uh, close. Yeah, a Adam and I are heading out um, in Today. like two hours to go <laughs> yeah. from recording this uh, to go to Steam Dev Days, and we're going to be there for uh, a couple days in Seattle. And Carol's going to Indiecade at the end of this week mm -hmm. uh, for Pass the Buck, mm -hmm. a game of corporate responsibility management. That's right. Um <laughs> which is her card game. And so we're all just kind of, and then Sam's on his honeymoon this week. So we're all just, we're all just kind of scattered to the four winds, um, which also, and also actually next week, uh, Fat Bard, who does all of our podcast audio stuff, is going to be gone. And so, <laughs> yep. uh, so next week we're actually doing a, a rerun episode, which will be a pretty cool surprise. And I think he's going to remaster the audio. He's just yeah. going to add quality to it somehow. Yeah. So it's kind of like in Enhance. CSI, exactly. You just, <laughs> you just, I stole your joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just going to zoom in, enhance it, and it's yeah, going to be great. It's going to be perfect. Um, and then before we get to the questions, there's one other kind of uh, interesting kind of industry news item mm -hmm. that came up, which I think would be kind of cool to talk about, which is a uh, pocketgamer.biz article came out, I think today, about the price of acquiring a paying mobile user. Yeah. Um, and this applies to free-to-play games. So we, just for some context, we used to make free-to-play games. Um, we made four games that were free with ads and in-app purchases uh, because as we were trying to get our studio established, we we kind of realized that we needed to, you know, we needed to kind of play by the rules of the market and, and uh, do whatever we could to build up an audience and prove to people that we were making quality stuff. Um, and then with Crashlands, we made a pay up front game, which once we had demonstrated that we can make a good game, then people were much more willing to 
feature us and players were more willing to take a gamble on, you know, the stuff that we were making. Um, so for us, our pay up front game has done dramatically better for us as a studio than all of our free games did. Um, and this, this little new statistic that came out today probably explains a lot it's, about it's illuminating. Uh, So at the beginning of this year, the average cost for a company to acquire a paying mobile user for free games was about $97. It's it's incredible. So so in other words, you would have to, as a company, you would have to spend $97 in basically in advertising to acquire uh, enough users for your game that one of them would buy something uh, because fewer than 10% of people will ever buy anything from any game. And if you look at it on a specific game to game basis, you know, the number is more like, you know, just a few percent um, of the players in any given game will actually buy an in-app purchase or whatever. Uh, So it makes sense now in retrospect as to why it was so hard for us Mm -hmm. uh, because we, we made these free games. We had in-app purchases in them. And we were just kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. You know, we didn't have any kind of like maniacal, psychologically manipulating things in them. They're just like, you know, you can just buy this stuff and there's a finite amount of things you can you can buy. Um, and I think Quadrupus is our game that has the most things you can buy. And I think the most you could spend on it is like $30. Mm-hmm. Well, if it costs $97 to in ads to get a new user... Um, obviously that's not sustainable, right? Yeah. Well, you go to GDC or something, you go to the mobile summit or you go to the monetization talks and they, they're just pushing whales, 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 these people who are spending the top 1%. So they're spending thousands of dollars on free to play games at times. And this is why, because it's not just that somebody has to pay $95. It has to be the average yeah. Right. Has to be at least that. So it's not just that it costs 95 bucks to and get a skew, user. And it's skew heavily toward people who yeah. spend a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So your game has to be designed so that the average paying player spends over about a hundred. Can bucks. spend a hundred dollars. Um, although that number has trended downward. Um, so that by June of this year, according to this article, and I have no verification of their statistics. According so, to a study. <laughs> so according says. to this article, which like all things, as Adam was saying, don't believe it. Take it with a grain of salt, yep. uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but according to this, the cost is down to something like $50, $55 or something like that. Um, Which is still, still as much as you pay for a PS4 that's game, a, that's like a AAA, a, that's PS4 a AAA title. title. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, th- th- these numbers kind of bring to light a lot of the reasons why all the top mobile games are the way they are, because that's the only way to make it sustainable. If it costs that much to get somebody to play it, mm-hmm and to spend money in it, then the game has to be rigged in such a way as to try to make people spend as much as possible. Yeah, and in order to stay on the top of the list because the lists are dynamic, that means people have to continue doing that. So you have to keep on pumping advertising revenue or advertising money into these things to get those users to stay on the top. And the only way to keep doing that is if you're making more than 100 bucks per user on app. Yeah, yeah so this is... I don't know. It, Which, it it reaffirms my idea that I don't want to be making free games anymore. Right, and <laughs> it's untenable. Just, it's mind-boggling that people complain about paying a buck or two for a quote-unquote premium game when these free games are designed literally to bleed its... Well, not literally. <laughs> <laughs> but they're designed to bleed the money out of their players. No, I would say literally. Literally yeah. bleed the money out of their players. Yeah, you just open a vein and just pull the quarters out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know uh, about all this. 
but it it does it does kind of present the industry in a in a different light than I had sort of thought about before, which is just how sort of unsustainable this model is if you are a small developer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, if you don't have money to dump into advertising. Well, because I mean, the other the other side of this whole thing is that this means that if it costs you ninety five dollars to get well now fifty or fifty so super if cheap it costs now. you a bunch <laughs> if it costs you a bunch of, even if it costs you five dollars to to get a paying user into your game. Then that means any money that they pay you, you don't actually get until they've spent at least $5 on average, right? And so if that margin is $95 or $50 or whatever, that means that your average player has to spend more than that before you even get any of it. Yep. Which is yeah, just, and then you also have to try to maybe offset those costs by filling your game with advertisements or something, mm-hmm. you know? So other people are advertising to your players to try to get them to play their game, you yeah. know? So it's just kind of this weird ecosystem of everybody just kind and of the, Yeah, and the people who are really getting money in this deal are advertisers. Yes. <laughs> advertisers and, and platform holders. And platform yeah. holders. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, uh, just kind of an interesting statistic that, that popped up. That's just nuts. So uh, let's get to some questions. We want to do a lot of questions because uh, last week we put out the call for questions and our people answered. You delivered. Uh, so good. And we have just a, we just have a, a smorgasbord, which I believe is some kind of Swedish meat plate. Yes, um, I, I believe you're right. Of questions, <laughs> Swedish meat plate of questions, meaty, uh, meaty, juicy questions. Yeah, these questions come from podcast.bscotch.net, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, you all continue this trend of providing many. And awesome yeah, we love and I, we love getting questions from everybody. It's our favorite part of the podcast, actually. Yeah. Um, we pull up the questions on podcast.bscotch.net. We, we look do. at them and we do little dances. We do. We're like, yeah. look at all these questions. Look at all these amazing questions. Yeah. But it does get exhausting <laughs> because um, we have to. We also need to sort of like you know come up with a song for each question mm-hmm. and a unique dance mm-hmm. and it um you know so don't ask too many questions because it gets it just gets it really eats into our day and gets exhausting all this yeah try to find a, a nice balance yeah I mean although we could all use the exercise yeah yeah well Seth doesn't need any more exercise but that's true I, I hit do. I, I'm done I did it yep. you done I did it. all the I did all the exercise. <laughs> Because you've gotten it all. I did it. <laughs> Woo. Uh, but yeah, so go to podcast.bscotch.net, ask us some questions. Give us some exercise. You can also find a podcast there as well as where to subscribe, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And let's get into it. Let's do it. Everybody ready? Wait. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Uh, so some of the, there will be some of these questions that we'll wait until Sam gets back mm-hmm. and we'll answer them next week or in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> all right, first question comes from Ogus Who's. Ogus Who's. Who's. August. Wait, what's the kid from Willy Wonka? Augustus Gloom. Augustus Gloom. Gloom. The greedy nincompoop. Okay. Ogus who is the greedy nincompoops. We spent the first year of a child's life teaching it to walk and talk, and the rest of its life to shut up and sit down. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Was it, this is a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts? Agreed. Yeah, that's true. We do do that. Yeah, What's going do. on with that? Why do we do that? Uh, it is fucked up. Um... And this is something that we also talk about quite a bit is is just how shitty our education system is yeah, uh, when it comes to exactly this. We're culturally trained to not be creative yeah. and not think like progressively because you do exactly what we tell you to. And if you do anything that's different from that, you're going to go to detention. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to our our culture of reliance on standardized tests, which, of course, is, is you know, this is the kind of thing people talk about. Everywhere all the time, and everybody knows it's a problem, uh, but nobody seems to have a, a a good solution to it. 
But yeah, I mean, kids are uh, very creative. They're very high energy. They like to ask a lot of questions. They like to create things and learn new things. And if you slam them into a desk and tell them to shut up and, mm -hmm. you know, read a book for eight hours a day. And just um, memorize things. They're going to have a bad time. They're going to stop drawing unicorns with eight feet yeah, because this... you're like, that doesn't exist. You can't draw that. <laughs> but honestly. Unicorns only have four legs. But Jesus. Honestly, this is an ex like this is a direct parallel to the concept of crunch time in the games mm -hmm. industry. Um, where we all know that, especially uh, if you're a, a programmer, that your mistakes cascade, right, really dramatically mm -hmm. into the future. Yeah. Um, and if you are sleep deprived and you've been working 80 or 90 hour weeks and you are writing really bad code as a result, then you're going to have a really bad time, right? Mm -hmm. And so we all know this. And yet, uh, particularly in the games industry, crunch time is a really big thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a direct parallel where we know that kids, we know what kids need, but we also know that we need them to take standardized tests. Mm -hmm. So we'll just strap them into their desks, make them take tests. Similarly, you know, we know we need to get a game finished. And we also know it's bad for people to crunch, but we're going to crunch anyway. <laughs> I think this also parallels corporate America and corporate culture pretty frighteningly because people are hired for their incredible resumes and their incredible ability to critically think during interviews, and then they're put into a cubicle, and if they have any good ideas, then they're silenced, they're shoved down. Like, you're given a promotion so that you can do really great new work for a company. I've heard this kind of story so many times. You got an idea? Well, you know what? Send us a memo. We'll have a meeting on it in a couple months. And then we'll shoot it down. <laughs> and then shoot it down and then maybe see if we can get you fired because you're yeah. trying to change the company. And it's it's terrifying. It's difficult. Life is hard. People suck sometimes. Well, I think the other uh, and, the, <laughs> and from, from this quote, because I've actually seen the, the, the talk that he gave um, from which this quote comes. Which is very oh, for those who don't know, Neil deGrasse Tyson That's is amazing. an astrophysicist. Yeah. He did the series, the new Cosmos series, right? He's, he's one good. of Sagan's protégés. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's actually, also, our stepdad went to high school with him. What, That's, really? That's yeah. true, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's, very, really he's, very, but. <laughs> he's very inspirational about uh, learning science, that kind of thing. But his one of his big points with that quote in particular was also how we structure uh, kids' lives so much so that thing, and, and also have tight control because of our, what we've decided to value, right? So, so the example he gives is like if a kid drops an egg on the floor and it breaks and makes a mess, we get angry because they just made a mess instead of celebrating the fact that they just did an experiment studying gravity. Mm -hmm. right? And, <laughs> and uh, what's inside of an egg. And what's inside of an egg. You know, it's a biology experiment. And what happens experiment. when it gets in the carpet. Yeah, and this is actually, <laughs> right, this is now an opportunity to understand, like, how to clean things, right? What happens when you clean stuff? You're now you're dissolving things, you know. Yeah, acknowledging that mistakes are important. Right, because that's how you learn about the world. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, all I can really say There's a lot to unpack here, mm -hmm. which we probably can't hit. All Let your it. kids break things if you got them. And if you are an adult, break things and just be okay with that fact. This is why I let my cat poop on the floor sometimes. Yeah. Yep. This is why it's I poop just, on it's the just floor your sometimes. cat funneling creative energy out of its body. <laughs> uh, stinky, stinky creative energy. We could segue neatly into another question by Darth Binary, who asks What subject was your least favorite when you went to school? What would it be now? Oh, wow. So interestingly, in school, my least favorite subjects were math and science Yep. because they were poorly taught yep. and I wasn't encouraged. And I, when I made mistakes, I wasn't given a good way to actually, you know, figure out why. Yeah, you're just wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. Wrong. And I think also, <laughs> we, we talked about this at the Women in Games panel at Pixel Pop, but a lot of teachers kind of subconsciously bias 
teaching toward male students in math and science classes and sort of let the female students continue to kind of languish if if they're having a hard time. Um, And so it wasn't until out of college, actually, that I discovered Carl Sagan. Yeah. And And you were like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) I discovered, I discovered the original Cosmos, chewed through it, and then just suddenly became fascinated by science. Did you read any of his novels? Yes. Well, not his novels. I read- or whatever you would call him, I guess. Bukes. Novel's his, probably the wrong word. Books. Bukes. Yeah, his books. I, like, he has this amazing one called The Varieties of Scientific Experience. Yeah, it's real good. Which is just all of his talks about religion religion and science yep. uh, and their overlap. And it's, um, these, these kinds of things have helped really shape me as an adult. Because as a child, I was raised in a kind of uh, standard Midwestern upbringing. And have, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's being uh, diplomatic. <laughs> Bible Belt stuff, yeah. um, and and as I've gotten older and discovered these really amazing uh, ways of learning and these really amazing ways of viewing the cosmos and viewing science and viewing math and technology, I have really embraced it, and it's been it's been and you're like incredible. wow, everything's so much cooler than everybody told me. <laughs> right, <laughs> it really is too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. For me, it was uh, it was actually English. Which is because I loved writing, and I so I had a, I had a creative writing class back in like I think eighth grade or something. I actually wasn't even creative writing; it was just it was just our literature class or something. But the the teacher just all she ever had us do was just all this weird creative stuff, and so I would write this bizarre poetry and stuff that was like just because I thought it was really funny and entertaining, and I would get full credit for it because she also thought it was entertaining, even if it sort of defied the expectations of what she was trying to have us do. Wait, that was your least favorite class? That was my most. Favorite. Oh, okay, I was like, so that, was, that sounds awesome. That was my. That was my but that was sort of like the the peak. Of my experience with writing. I thought I loved writing at that point. And then I went to high school and all of a sudden it turned out the rules now were that everything had to be a five paragraph essay. That Mm -hmm. was just, that's how you write, I guess. Yeah. And then, and it had every every paragraph has to start with a very clear, perfect introduction. And Intro perfect paragraph conclusion. that establishes three points. One paragraph exactly. to expound on each of those three conclusion points. Conclusion that just reiterates the points you made just two fucking Which, seconds ago. Uh, spoiler alert, if you are in high school and you are doing five paragraph essays, they are literally not a thing that you do. Yeah, the rest of your life, you will never do that again. <laughs> that kind of writing is exhausting to read. Yeah. Yeah. Do, uh, what's that book? It's like, well, it's just, it's like reading a bullet point list, yeah. you know, basically. Economical writing. Economical writing. Writing by Deirdre McCloskey. Best book in the universe. It's it's just like, it explains this idea of this this sort of classical approach to essay writing is just so unnecessarily lengthy and loses your readers rather than engaging them and explaining what you're about to write. Right. And the focus at that time too for high school is like, it needs to be exactly a five-page paper, right? Or a three-page paper. Actually, I guess at that time it was like two pages. Now. Not, like, oh my not, God, this is so Not many. one and a half. <laughs> not, not one and a half. Seven. It's got to be exactly that number. So you have to somehow get your idea across. Into, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's always about fluffing it. And of course, then Where you go to college. Where else in the universe yeah. is this a thing? And you go to college, and for the most part, that becomes less true unless you have shitty professors. But I had... I mean, I also had seven, seven to 10 page. Yeah. Well, and, and, and there's like, and for some there's a, but for us, most of my classes in college, now all of a sudden there was a maximum length and there was no minimum. And I was like, this is, seems weird. But then I started to get it as I got back into writing and realized what its purpose was, which is to communicate ideas really effectively. And now I find that writing is one of, is absolutely my favorite and preferred way to communicate an idea. Cause you can sit down and carefully craft and recraft and get exactly the idea that you want to get across. But it only works when you get to use it to think and to and to come up with ideas instead of having it have 
sort of an additional structure on top that you're trying to fit these ideas inside of for no goddamn reason. Hmm. So yeah, anyway, that, I found it, that experience was very frustrating and turned me off of writing really hard mm. uh, for a long time. And also literature just in general. Like I don't, I don't read literature at all so, because I think mostly of those experiences I had in. So yes, I agreed. also have a least favorite class, but I, and then I have an interesting observation to make uh, after I say it, which is, <laughs> My least favorite course was actually my freshman. This is like herd with purd. Yeah, is is my <laughs> yes. Here is my here is my answer, and my answer is going to be this. <laughs> um, I took computer science my freshman year mm. of college, and I've mentioned this uh, in in the past quite a bit because just because I think it's kind of ironic um, that now I'm a game programmer. But when I took computer science my freshman year, I hated it. I got a D minus. I, oh my God. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know how I even did that because I was so depressed about the course that I didn't even go into the final. Wow. Like I was just, I was just sort of at my wits end about it. And uh, it was because I, I think like to me programming, now that I know how to do it, programming is this just unbelievably cool problem solving tool that you can use to, you know, do all, just do all kinds of amazing things. Um, but it wasn't presented that way. Yeah. It was uh, the very first thing that we talked about was memory pointers. Mm-hmm. And like, that was two weeks. I'm like, I don't know why, what is this? Why you're am I doing it? This? You're, you're learning computer science for the sake of computer science. Yeah. We, we, so we were learning it from the details up. So yeah. it'd be kind of like, okay, we're going to learn about elephants. Let's start talking about like hydrogen atoms, you know, <laughs> an elephant DNA. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so it Which was just, there was just literally no, there was no big picture. And, uh, and the problems that we were solving in the course were actually more like highly technical problems to teach us these very fundamental, tiny, tiny things instead of doing things with programming that mm-hmm. were you know, interesting and, and, uh, and sort of evoked passion from people. So of course now I'm a programmer, um, and I friggin' love it. And it's, and it was all because I self-taught through the process of making video games, which was like a much bigger picture, interesting thing to do. It gives you purpose. Yeah. Um, what I think is cool about this is all three of us, our least favorite courses, uh, we all turned around and it became something that we were all really passionate about later. Yep. I mean, so I what is even, that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I would, I would uh, like agree with you that it's about the framing because I always struggled with my programming courses in college too. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of convinced me that, wow, this is just something that I'm never going to be good at. I thought the same and thing. And so now when yeah. I make my own video games, I use these drag and drop programs because I understand and appreciate and love the methodology. But I've had this wall built between me and the syntax, me and the code, mm-hmm. because because I, I never felt like I could pick it up because of the way that it was framed in college. Mm-hmm. And it's, Which, of course, is ridiculous in retrospect. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's absolutely a matter of framing it in such a way that it feels purposeful, that it's not just, hey, okay, now, now we're going to write out hello world. Let's echo hello world. And that means nothing. Well, let's make a variable called food and another one called bar. bar. What is yeah. this? Why do they do <laughs> Like, in what, in what context will I ever use that? Why can't we start out by teaching the methodologies and teaching the value and teaching, you know, these, these amazing things that we can do with these subjects? Like, we can learn about where we may have come from by studying the cosmos. We can learn how to communicate effectively and beautifully by studying English. Mm-hmm. We can learn to create worlds. We can learn to create like these yeah. amazing pieces of software. We got to focus on what it's for. Like, yeah. why are we like, why are we learning this stuff? Yeah. It's because it's freaking amazing and it's useful and it's going to make your life better. And it's going to make you a better person to know how to do this stuff and to know about these things. And you know, Hashtag disrupt education. But but yeah, you can't, but, but you know, and it all, it all really does come down to 
who is teaching it and how they teach it. Well, yeah. well, and also remember that teachers, especially before you get to college, are teaching stuff that they're required by law typically to teach according to the state that they're in, right? So, so now all of a sudden, they can't teach cosmos from the perspective of our origins because now all of a sudden all these parents will get angry about They've got a textbook Big and Bang a curriculum doesn't exist and, and whatever. So you have to, have, so you have to suddenly now politics are involved mm-hmm. and suddenly helicopter parents. Suddenly there's a, in. there's a test involved that if the students do poorly, now the school will get defunded. And now also there's a state established rubric of what you're supposed to teach. That's the biggest yeah. thing that and I've so, had friends who are teachers have said, like, I'm not allowed to actually write my own syllabi yeah. anymore. Yeah. So even if you are a good <laughs> teacher, right. Even if you are a good teacher, you're you not can't. a good teacher. Yeah, but it, I you mean, but it, the the origin of that kind of makes some sense, right? Which is that you want to make sure all kids get a good education, and there also are shitty teachers. So if you establish at least the minimum of what people need to be taught, then maybe that will work out okay. Of course, that's not actually it's like what happens. A, it's like a fifteen pieces of flare run amok <laughs> situation. <laughs> you, have, you have to teach this minimum, but don't go. You can't go above. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah okay. Well, that was sad. Let's do it. But on a, on a happier note, any topic that you didn't like, any subject that you didn't enjoy, there's an enormous amount to enjoy from it. Mm-hmm. I promise. You just, hit it for, you just hit it from the wrong angle. Hit it from the wrong angle. And now in your, uh, even if you're still a child listening to this, which you should. Yeah, go you, away, your child. <laughs> you, uh, your sweet little but, baby ears just heard the fuck word. <laughs> the fuck word. It's not even the F word on this podcast. <laughs> it's just, we call it the fuck word. Yeah. But as adults or kids today, uh, because of the internet, you can now go learn anything. It's amazing. Yeah, and and there's no longer a barrier. So if you always thought programming was too hard, if you thought math was too hard or boring or whatever, I promise you it's not, and you're wrong. And now you can just wrong. go on the internet, and you can, you can literally just go learn these things now. So yeah, we, yeah. We'll leave I, it at that. No, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a. I think it's amazing. Also, that the internet gives you so many different ways to pursue it. It's yeah, you find right. the way that's taught best for you. But be careful because all that educational shit is also alongside regular shit, like Pepe the Frog. <laughs> yeah, there's there's crap all over the internet. Uh, there, I mean, YouTube is the best way to learn stuff, mm-hmm. but it's also the best way to accidentally glance over at the sidebar and see recommended videos, and like, look at this, blah, look at this ridiculous thing, and then you click on it, and you're like, just one, just one, real quick. Yeah, don't then, look at it. And then you're just you're done. I actually tried to find a Chrome extension that that removes the YouTube sidebar. I couldn't find one. You gonna make one? We should start making. We should start making productivity. A, the Bscotch productivity the, suite. The internet blaster that just like <laughs> nukes parts of the internet that, so you can't see them. Yeah, we should probably have that. And replaces every occurrence of a study shows with <laughs> some people think. <laughs> Or and even so, a, a person schmo. thinks. Also, <laughs> any any headline that says something may be true, it should it should change it to may or may not. Yeah. Or something is probably false. Yeah. <laughs> something is more likely yeah. false than true. Chocolate may or may not reduce your risk of heart disease. Although probably better if you just replaced every single headline with "this is clickbait." <laughs> <laughs> and just leave it at that. You know, there you go. We want to tell it. We want to tell it how it is. With yeah. our B-Scotch productivity suite. Is there a clickbait replacer? Because I want things to say like, you won't believe, blah. You know, just to replace that with. You will believe this. You're going to believe that. This, this is isn't like, surprising <laughs> at all. This isn't surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Come be unsurprised. All right. I got another kind of decent segue, I think. Segue. All right. So, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin888. We don't have any segues. We should. We should get an office segue. Kevin888 as asks, as we, don't we have a lot of, of terrain to yes. traverse in this too office. So. Too many of those St. Louis cliffs. <laughs> too, it was, I mean, 
it was sad, but it was also probably one of the most ironic deaths in mm. recent memory. It's terrible. It's the president of Segway went off a cliff on a Segway. Anyways, <laughs> that's a story for another time. It's a story for the onion. For the onion. But it's not actually it's not, for the onion. It's not, but. Yeah. Uh, so Kevin 888 <laughs> asks, or sa- says and asks. States. The bros seem to have a similar style of writing and game design, but now that there are more people, will there be changes in the voice of Scotch games? Mm. So this is interesting because actually we don't. Yeah. So, Can confirm. Yeah. Um, Sam's writing has a tendency to be a little bit more brief and punchy. Adam's writing tends to be very verbose and explanatory. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is because, similar to mine. Because Adam mm-hmm. assumes that people know nothing, and Sam assumes that people know more than they do. Yeah. Um, I'm, Carol's I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I'm usually somewhere in the middle, and I was yeah. also a writing tutor in college, so I tend to be a lot more detail-oriented on grammar and structure yeah um but because and then of course yeah carol is probably closer to adam um i like details mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but what what i think is interesting is that uh there's the perception probably that we have a similar writing style or whatever but it's actually because we just do a lot of we give a lot of feedback right yeah, so we, we pass writing yeah. around back and forth and if somebody writes something up then when they get it to a state where they think it's good and ready to go then they hand it off to somebody else and that person's like this is not good ready <laughs> yeah. to go Redo, yeah, because we all have different perspectives and we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And by, you know, helping each other with feedback, then we can, you know, find the holes in the writing. Exactly. So naturally there will be an evolution to the writing style as we add more people who will be providing feedback and co-writing. But what's been really interesting for me is that coming in, we had a very established Scotch voice, mm-hmm. right? That we all knew, we all understood. Everything is going to be funny. Everything is entertainment. You know, we don't send anything out that's dry. And that was a huge challenge for me because I am, I was raised by an editor of Prentice Hall, like educational books. And that's just <laughs> right. like as, as dry as it gets. So I was taught <laughs> technical writing, you yeah, know, like get these jokes out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. so, so I've actually had to study stand up comedy and comedy writing and, like really like sit down in front of these comedy shows and write down why I laughed, why I didn't laugh, why I got upset and start bringing that into my it's writing. It's kind of a weird thing to do, but it makes sense. Yeah, know. totally. Yeah. And it's, I, it was really amazing to hear Sam uh, hear from one of his friends that the, that newsletter that we sent out a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, I was the one who originally wrote that. Then we co-wrote it together, like mm-hmm. revising it. And she was like, she couldn't believe that, I was the one who originally wrote it because it was so much in the B Scotch voice. Yeah, that's exactly. So it's it weird because, because none of us actually has that voice. Right? right. No, it's, it's a very a, difficult voice to have. It's a. It's the consequence of collaboration. Yeah, it's a, it's a conglomerate. Well, it's that we're all we're all working towards the same goal, right? Which is, as Carol said, is to make these entertainment products. And so, and so, to us, that means kind of a specific set of things that could give the vibe that we're trying to provide for the studio. Because we want it to be a fun, entertaining place where you just get to laugh and feel like you've had a moment of glee and have and get to forget about the other things that are happening in your life. But I think a, another kind of cool thing about this idea is that it it, it sort of illustrates um, some kind of fundamental thing about the way we operate as a studio, which is uh, nobody really has no individual person really has one hundred percent ownership of anything, right? Yeah. Um, because we do offer a lot of feedback on things and we give stuff to other people to edit and proofread. And, um, and even, you know, for me, when I'm, you know, the code that I write in the games is all my code, but I'm constantly presenting what I've created to people in the studio and saying, Hey, is this working the way that it should? And if not, you know, what can we change? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So at the end of the day, and we've talked about this in the past, but um, you know, when we look at something like Crashlands or Quadrupus or whatever, uh, none of us feels like we made it. Yeah, because it's a collaborative. Because effort. none of there, there's not a, there's not any individual thing that any of us can point at and say that was all me, right? right. Because it's yeah. all just a group effort. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. And it is the case that we do. And actually, this leads into the next question. As well. <laughs> so this, many this is going segues. Really well. Segue. <laughs> but this. Uh, I mean, part of this is that is that we do all have sort of primary roles, right? Which which is more that we have responsibility for a thing than we have ownership of that thing. Meaning that the buck stops at you. Yeah, exactly. But. So it's <laughs> it sets responsibility to make sure that if he's doing things, that he enlists the help of other people for debugging. And if he puts out a game that's broken, that is his fault now, right? Because he did. Damn it! He didn't <laughs> go through the steps necessary to get all of us to collaborate to make sure that the thing worked. Same deal if one of us sends out a newsletter. If I like, if I pull the trigger on something since I. I'm doing all the Bscotch ID stuff. If I draft up a, some part of Bscotch ID really quick and then just send it out without showing it to anybody and then it offends somebody or doesn't work or whatever, that's now my fault, right? So we do have primary responsibilities that we need to make sure actually happen. So we make things come to fruition, right? Uh, but we don't do that in a vacuum at all. Exactly. It's fun. It's good. It is good. But y'all, yeah, you also have to be, there's a there's a, an idea that we always tell people, which is, um, you know, you have to separate your sense of self from your, the things that you create, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because if you take it as a personal attack, anytime somebody looks at a thing you made and is like, this isn't as good as it could be, um, then that's very, you can't take feedback all of a sudden. Yeah. Like you can't improve the thing that you made because- you can't acknowledge that it needs improvement without being hurt. You know? Which is an unnatural mindset. I it mean, is actually. Yeah. For, you know, it, it's human nature to feel proud of what you do. And then if somebody says this isn't good enough, then you're like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. And it's so it takes a lot of adjustment. And it's been I mean, I know it's been an adjustment period for me. I don't know about the other guys, but it's mm-hmm. it's still ultimately, you know, that the product that you are putting out as a group is way better than any product that you could put out as an yeah. individual. And so it's that like that reminder of, OK, I know that this feedback is to for the sake of improvement and yeah. exclusively for improvement, not yeah. for insult. And it and takes practice thinking about that before you truly believe it. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that the person is criticizing the thing you made, not not just to like cut you down, right? <laughs> yeah, but to help you improve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So everybody listening, practice taking feedback for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this does nicely lead to the next question, also by Kevin eight eight eight. Way to go, Kevin! Who, he's crushing yeah. it right now. Will there ever be a time when one person takes a lead on a project? For mm. example, would it be possible for Carol or Sure or Andy to lead a project and make their dream game? To me, this has two kind of interesting things that I want to talk about because one is the concept of making your dream game, mm-hmm. but the first one I. Think I think we've, we've really already discussed, right? Which is everybody is taking a lead on something, right? And and Andy and Sure right now are probably the, taking the fewest leads on stuff because they're still just mostly training. But eventually they will take leads on something. But that means the same thing it does in for any the rest of us right now. Yeah, it it means that the buck will stop with them on something, right? Yeah, but they won't be just universally in charge of making of directing a thing, I guess. Yeah. I remember when we were first chatting about doing Quadrupus remastered. It was a all studio. Yeah. An all studio discussion yep. of us all just chatting about our ideas and mm-hmm. chatting about, you know, what would fit and what, you know, could be really cool. And it was a it was a really amazing experience to just be with, you know, these six people all tossing out ideas and feeling yep. like every idea was valid. Uh, so, yeah, I would I would agree with that, that anytime we've even, you know, I've mentioned we pivot every week or whatever. <laughs> um, but every time we've had, you know, a new a new game idea in the works, it's always felt like everyone's idea is 
you know, validated. On yeah. That. Exactly. And we, we, we have talked about Crashlands as being Sam's dream game. Like mm-hmm. we have, we have used that uh, phrasing, but what's interesting about it is it, it, in its current form and what it turned out to be, that was not what Sam envisioned. Actually, nothing like it. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, his it was basically it wasn't like he had this like exact vision of a dream game that he wanted to make. He just was very passionate about the idea of basically making an open world crafting game um, that had some elements from some other stuff that he liked. Where too. you were a vacuum that went around picking up. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so so it wasn't it wasn't that he had a, a, a very specific dream game that he was sort of, you know, like cracking the whip over Adam and me yep. and making us, you know, execute his idea. It was more like, you know, I have this thing that I think would be cool to try. Let's figure out how to make it go. Yeah. And of course it evolved over two years and it changed basically every week. Um, and then it just became what it is. And so. I think this is important because it's this whole concept of like ownership and making your dream game and so on. I think this is a trap that so many, so many small indie devs fall into when they go off to make games because they do it because they love games and they want to make, they have this vision in their mind of the thing that they want to make that is the, their dream game, right? And as soon as they do that, then now all of a sudden they need to, they need to enlist people who will buy into their vision, mm-hmm. their specific vision. Instead of just because wanting to work on something just, awesome. Exactly. <laughs> instead of wanting to collaborate on something awesome. And so that, you, it makes, it makes everybody else subservient to your right. idea of mm-hmm. what's the right. best. And thing to me, this actually seems to be what most people think they want when they think they want to be a game developer is that they want to, cause they all, they all want to be a game designer. Mm-hmm. They want a team of people who will make their ideas real. Right. Yeah. Similarly, when you come in with that dream game idea, like this is the game that I want, I feel like that also makes you less inclined to be willing to give it up if it doesn't work. Absolutely. Or, yeah. you know, to to make adjustments to it. Or if, like or uh, coming back to the feedback idea, if somebody says this is not good, you they've know, just crushed your dream. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not just talking about a, just, you know, a, thing that you made they're talking about yeah they're they're literally saying that your dreams aren't good (laughs) Uh, which is yeah it's just it's a it's a very dangerous mindset to get into actually it's very difficult to work with yeah but that said i work on little tiny dream games on my own all the time there's nothing to say that if there's you know if there's a project that you want to work on you can't oh yeah yeah no, nothing at all. And that's something that you should probably do exactly that way mm-hmm. on your own, right? Yeah, hobbyist style. Yeah, it's 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 for you. If if you're making a dream game, that thing is for you, right? right? That's not for other people. That is not a product. That's not a thing. It might turn into one, depending on how things go. But if your purpose is to make a thing because it's your dream, then that thing is for you. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Right. But if you're going to try to turn that into a product to You try to people, make other people make it. Either uh, make, make it or it buy it. Yeah, yeah, either way. <laughs> you're going to be in for a very rough time. And the vast majority of times that doesn't work out. Every once in a while, some amazing, cool, weird uh, thing comes out of that that people get into um, or that people will buy into to help you make. But it's a difficult road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would guess maybe something like Stardew Valley probably falls into that. I was made by one person. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. A lot of the the really successful indie indie games that you'll see out there that were tiny teams. It's like this super successful dream game that mm-hmm. is one in thousands Yep, right. um, that was marketed right. really well yep. and made really well. And, you know, a lot of times when people think about making their dream game, they're not thinking about how to market it. Yeah. They're thinking about how can I make this? Yeah. Right. Well, and it also reminds me of um, the GDC talk on Antichamber, mm-hmm. which was uh, solo dev mm-hmm. and he worked on the game for seven years mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, it was kind of, it was similar in, in the sense that, you know, this was something that he was really passionate about, you know, making this thing come, come to life and this just mind bending first person puzzle game. Um, 
but he was crushed by it. I mean, yeah. try, trying to make this thing happen because he, he sort of got, um, you know, sort of emotionally enslaved by the idea of making this thing come to life. And he was, he just had a very, he, he, even giving the talk, he kind of broke down, you know, just talking mm-hmm. about the experience of making this game. Yeah, so it's an emotional process. It's yeah. hard. So yeah. Anyway, Any more so, segues, Adam? Dream games. Uh, well, actually don't. So now I need to do <laughs> no. a pivot. Oh, pivot. So here's, here's my pivot. pivot. Here's my pivot, pivot question. Pivot time in the question talks. <laughs> this comes from Roxton who asks, how do you type with those boxing gloves on? Belated. Del Taco. Belated. All right. So that was a good segue. <laughs> so now let's go with, uh, let's go with this question. I like this one. Who is your favorite antagonist in a video game and why? This is from mm. Dormouse85. Not just boss fight, but a villain present throughout the game. Oh, oh Sin from Final Fantasy X. Nice. You, you guys played Final no. Fantasy X? Nope. Sin is, <laughs> Sin is just basically this enormous monster that is destroying cities and stuff. And the, it, the, it seems that the goal of the game as you're progressing through is to defeat this thing. And every, every now and then you will, you know, go to a city and then all of a sudden, you know, this like tsunami comes in because this huge sea creature is like coming in to devour everything. And it's, it's very terrifying. It's one of the best, uh, horrifying villains I've ever <laughs> seen in a game. And there's some super sweet spoilers at the end, but you know, I'm not going to ruin it. Mm. The game has been out for like 14 years or something, but, <laughs> but it uh, takes a long time to play, so. but it recently came to steam. So, oh wow, you know, yeah. Right. And it's easily one of my favorite games of all time. So Final Fantasy check 10, it out. check I've, it out. I've never played many Final Fantasy games. I haven't played any of them. I've played uh, two of them. Mm. And people love 10 was villains. my 10 was my favorite Final Fantasy game of the two that I played. <laughs> so <laughs> I think my favorite villains are what's the guy's name from Borderlands 2? Was it Jack? Handsome, Handsome Jack. Jack. Handsome Jack. <laughs> Handsome Jack. And similarly, uh, GLaDOS from oh, Portal. Yeah. Because they're both clearly evil villains but in a really entertaining amusing way that also gives them just so much character and they're so fun to be involved yeah. with and to have glados yeah. glados is easily mine She's I, good. and okay so here's the thing it's not really a specific villain but probably the most the most affected i've been by a video game antagonist was in fatal frame 2 just the overall spiritual dread fatal frame fatal frame 2 it's i don't like horror games it's the only horror game that i've ever actually spent an extraordinary amount of time with but it is uh it's a japanese video game where you have to take pictures of ghosts to capture their souls and like (laughs) just the overall level of horror and dread throughout that game that's just like literally dripping from the walls there's blood dripping out of the walls <laughs> there's like skin of humans everywhere so like i would say the, of i guess i guess the environment of fatal frame 2 just was the, the best antagonist villain, yeah. the best video game antagonist that i, feel I like have no, ever that's, experienced. that's true though. i mean in a horror game the environment should be the villain yeah right oh, on God. some level yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and oh, similarly, have either of you guys played? This is kind of it's October horror game talk. True, I'm yeah. turning spooky. this into spooky. spooky. <laughs> uh, the Eternal Darkness Mm-mm. for GameCube was the first fourth wall breaking video game I think that I I had ever heard of. And they actually used in order to increase that level of horror and that level of just like what the hell is even happening. They actually made it seem like the system, like your game system was broken or like the the game had restarted itself (laughs) or the, like there's a ghost in your game cube. Yeah. Or there's like a glitch that's like pushing you, like it's squishing the screen farther and farther and farther. And so you actually have an insanity meter and the higher your insanity meter gets, the more fucked up the game becomes on a, (laughs) on a fourth wall breaking level. 
And so like similarly antagonist of your own sanity. Wow. (laughs) It's pretty, pretty amazing. Interesting. Yeah. I I wish I had a GameCube now. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. It's probably like $20. I have have a copy of the game if you ever want to borrow it. Nice. (laughs) I'm actually have one at home. I think about GameCube. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. I think Jenny had one. Nice. Maybe. I will loan you this game. I had it in college. I had an eternal darkness until dawn party where we just stayed up all night playing eternal darkness. It was scary. Nice. <laughs> Sounds Halloweeny. It was Halloweeny. <laughs> right, I think we, we can throw one more question in here. We can. Um, Maybe so even gonna, six if we're quick about it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot again since we're talking about Halloween and spookiness. Like this isn't really a pivot. This is gonna be this is a segue. segue. Yeah. Segue or pivot. So Hawks Rock Hawks Rock 250. <laughs> I don't know why I can't say this. Hawks Rock 250 says, hear about the supposed clown attacks? Is oh, it real or fake? Or is it just Adam running around in his Halloween suit? It's Adam. I promise it's not me. <laughs> yeah. swear. I know we've been saying that we've been going to a bunch of conventions and traveling around, but really. No, no, really we have been, and it has not just been me dressing as a clown. Totally, me neither. terrifying people. I also haven't Neither been. of us have been doing this, yep. even a little bit, promise. Yeah, I'm, glad we put, I'm glad we put that to bed. <laughs> Good work. All right, next question. <laughs> I don't actually dead. know much about this thing. I haven't been paying attention Has because paying it attention? seems yeah. absurd. Yeah. Apparently it's, it's probably just real. a bunch of creepy clown people going around and just standing and staring at people. Some So cops have been apparently uh, kind of discriminating against clowns in public and just kind of automatically arresting them anytime they see them because this has become this weird <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, and probably I think the most, and I could be totally wrong, but I think the most law-breaking thing that has actually been reported is that people have been voyeuristic and like actually staring into people's homes yeah. uh, in a creepy way. But I think the concern is that there's going to be kidnappings and assaults and things but like that. But probably what it really is is just a whole bunch of Redditors. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> there's a subreddit. This would be hilarious. I'm sure there's a subreddit somewhere. I think I'm, you, this can be private, right? Yeah, I don't know. I bet there's probably. a private being a creepy clown subreddit. R slash being a creepy clown. <laughs> where they just come creepy up with ideas club. for how to fucking creep people out. Yep. Yeah, but it just sounds like exactly the kind of thing I imagine high school boys would do today right yeah when it's also the kind of thing that's going to culminate in somebody dying yeah someone's gonna some clown's gonna get shot it's gonna turn out to be a 15 year old student you just thought it would be funny prank just a prank bro just a prank i just got a machete and dressed like a clown and stood in the woods near your house just a prank (laughs) there's a a really uh Patton oswalt has an old stand-up comedy special where he talks about a clown that comes to his daughter's birthday party and he's just like not even trying he just has a clown nose on and i guess that's it or something like that (laughs) and he comes walking out of the woods into this park for whatever reason he comes from the woods and just like saunters up and just instead of making balloon animals he just makes long balloons and gives them to them and says, look, it's a sword. <laughs> Shittiest so I feel clown like, ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I feel like that's probably uh, what's happening is just people are too lazy to actually be clowns. So they're just walking out of the woods and just standing there and staring yeah. at you. So if you're hey, one of those clowning, people. Clowning is hard. You yeah. know, it's, it's a tough yeah. profession. So yeah. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. It probably is actually a very difficult profession to be Mo- a clown. No, Most professions are if you yeah. do them well. Yeah. I know a former clown, actually. Former clown. She though. left. She left clowning. To yeah. actually dye yarn. It's a I mean, that's a pretty natural career trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> she now has a very successful all, yarn business. We've all been there. We've yeah. all been there. We've all, we've all been there. That's true. 
Yeah. But yeah, so if you are dressing up as a clown and scaring the fuck out of people, just quit it. Just don't. Don't for, do it. Don't for do every it. reason in the universe, quit it, but also probably you're going to get shot. Yeah. So yeah. for your own arrested. sake, as well as the rest of our sakes, just just Because this is America, and the only way to stop a clown is with a gun. Hey, cut it out. Uh, but that means we need, <laughs> we need some good clowns. Cut, cut it out. Never mind. I don't get it. I don't get it's it a Full House reference. Oh, my God. Full House. I'm oh. sorry for my <laughs> transgressions. <laughs> Somebody probably got it listening. Probably. Good uh, job, whoever got that. If you got it, go to podcast.bscotch.net to validate my humor. <laughs> Tell Carol she's hilarious at podcast.bscotch.net. Hey, cut it out. No, d- but no, do it though. No, no, do it. You do yeah. it. Yeah. Don't cut it out. Actually, go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we're probably we're probably done here. I think. <laughs> I think uh, we nailed it. Good job, so, folks. So this this episode, we're all obviously very tired. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we had a nice chat, and I promise that in a couple of weeks we're gonna we're gonna try to spice it up some more. We're gonna come roaring back yeah. to the microphone in a ball of fury. We're gonna dip. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> dip the next podcast in a bucket of salsa. Yeah, it's, yeah. Gonna, it's gonna burn your. And then we're gonna dip the other end of it in some guac. Ooh. <gasps> Oh, that sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to be. Let's I mean, do it's going to be great. It's gonna be so really please good. follow us. Yep. On Twitter, do it. Subscribe to our do podcast. We're on iTunes. We are on Stitcher and SoundCloud and Google Play and Google podcasts. Play podcasts. Google Podcasts. Google Boog. <laughs> <laughs> go find us on all the things, and again, go to podcast.bscotch.net to ask us questions and tell Carol that she's hilarious. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. bye.